All right, well, um, quickly in review, we know that at this point in the narrative, Jesus is actually a year into his ministry, uh, but what he's done is he's changed locations. Okay? Prior to this, uh, the more majority of that first year was, was spent uh, in the capital there in Jerusalem. Uh, he spent most of his time in the temple because, you know, you don't have to go to the temple to draw a crowd because the crowd's already there. And so he would go there to minister to the people. Uh, he, he's already gone there and cleared it once. Uh, he'll do it again later. Um, but he's been down there for about a year. The record of that ministry is not recorded by Matthew, Mark, or Luke, but it's in the Gospel of John. And the reason is, is that John was actually with him on and off throughout that time. And, uh, but toward the end of that year, Jesus got news that his cousin, uh, John the Baptist had been put in prison because he rebuked Herod Antipas for having his brother's wife. Uh, messed up family, just slightly. So he has returned now to the north, to the Galilee. Uh, that's the lake in the northern region of Israel. And he's made his, his headquarters, as it were, in Capernaum on the, uh, the north end of the lake, west side of the river. And um, also, as we observed last week from verse 17 that Jesus, most importantly, began his ministry by preaching repentance. And he says, it's because the kingdom of heaven is at hand, which means it's imminent, it's about to come upon you. Uh, the king was there, and, uh, and wherever, wherever the king is, his kingdom will follow. He preached repentance because without it, no one can enter into the kingdom. Apart from repentance, nobody can be saved. You can't remain in love with this world and, uh, and move on to the next one, not his kingdom anyway. Man has to turn away. He has to turn to God. And as Jesus continues to announce the prerequisites for the entrance into his kingdom, he now begins to gather men to himself uh, to assist him in calling people to repentance and to, to join this, this kingdom. So let's, let's read the text. If you're able, please stand, and I'll read God's word to you. Matthew chapter 4, I'm in Luke, close, <laughs> Luke 4 verse 18, I'll be reading to the end of the chapter. And Jesus, walking by the sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then Jesus said to them, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. He called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. <clears throat> and Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. Father, we thank you for your word. <clears throat> thank you for the testimony of your son's life, our Lord. And we pray that, Lord, you'd use your word today to grow us, to mature us, to encourage us, and uh, just help us to understand better that we might live for you, Lord. 
Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, please be seated. If you would, just look with me at verse 18, and we'll go over the text more in depth here. Now, when you read both Matthew and Luke especially, this, this part of Matthew 4 seems to be random because Matthew and Luke don't record what has happened before this. And uh, so it appears that Jesus has randomly showed up on the beach and he just out of the blue meets these guys, calls them, they drop everything and they follow him. It's not the case, okay? It's not a random event. Uh, it wasn't the first encounter that Jesus has had with these, with these guys. He's known them uh, for the better part of a year, at least these uh, four, okay? As we talked about last week, uh, a year earlier, John, that is the disciple, and Andrew, they were with John the Baptist. John chapter 1, he records it. And uh, John the Baptist had seen Jesus walking by, and this was after his baptism. And he elbowed the guys and he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it was at that time that, that John and Andrew started following Jesus in some kind of official or unofficial capacity, It's not made official until this chapter. And then shortly after they started following Jesus, Andrew then introduced Jesus to his brother Peter. Okay, And when Andrew introduced them, Jesus said to Peter, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be, future tense, called Cephas. So Peter knows Jesus for about a year now. Okay, Uh, He better know him because he renamed him. All right? Now, Cephas, in, of course, is Aramaic for a stone or a rock. It's Aramaic because that's the language that Jesus spoke. But Simon, as, as Jesus gave this in the future tense, Simon is going to have to wait to be called Cephas because currently in his life, it's not indicative of his character. Okay? Some people have said, well, he's more like shifting sand uh, than he is a solid rock. And, um, but like us... It's true, God, Christ, is going to have to take us from uh, wherever we are, and we come from a lot of different places, right? And he's going to be the one, he has to be the one, to make us into whatever it is that pleases him, whatever it is that glorifies him. And uh, he is faithful to do that. Of course, later when Cephas was among the Gentiles who spoke Greek. They didn't refer to him as Cephas, which is Aramaic. They called him Petros. Petros. We call him in English Peter. We'll come back to the whole discussion about Peter's name in Matthew 16, and we'll elaborate on all that. So in our narrative, Jesus is on the shore of the Galilee. He sees these men who he's known, I guess, more than casually up to this point. We're told that they're fishermen by trade, um, that is, uh, on the sea with nets. How many of you guys have seen uh, somebody throw one of those, those massive nets? Have you ever seen that? If you haven't seen it, um, go on YouTube and watch it. Uh, it it's, they use them all over the world. I've seen people do it in Hawaii, um, but they do it in the Middle East. They do it in Southeast Asia, all over the place. It's pretty amazing. And I've heard that throwing one of those nets so that it actually spreads and lands on the water takes a long time to learn. So it's a, it's a huge trade there. Um, what they would do is um, they would, uh, quit, after they would catch them, they would quickly salt them heavily 
and then they would put them in barrels or boxes, and then they would begin to ship them all over the place. Now, oftentimes, we're, we get the impression, and, and I think it's probably because of, of people that have taught this, but, or, or because the Pharisees, uh, they didn't think that these men, and they were right, they hadn't been to any formal schooling, but they were tradesmen, and they traded with the people on the east side of the lake. Uh, most scholars believe that these guys were trilingual, so they're not just ignorant. Uh, sure, they haven't had formal education, but because of the trade, um, they are probably trilingual, trilingual. But their days of fishing are coming to a close. It says, then he said to them, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And they immediately left their nets and followed him. Jesus said, and we have to be careful the way we say it, follow me, follow me, okay? And the boys did. So when Jesus called out to them, he wasn't saying, follow me, question mark. You understand? He, he wasn't asking them to follow them. He wasn't asking them if it was a good idea or what they thought. Okay, the, in, the, in the original language, it's in the imperative form. When Jesus spoke to them, he commanded them. He commanded them. He said, follow me, follow me. Okay, it wasn't bossy. Uh, Jesus doesn't need to be that way. If you've ever been around people with real authority, they don't have to stoop to being bossy. They just speak. Okay? But it was understood that they were to obey. That wasn't out of compulsion. No one needs to follow Jesus out of compulsion. He's too good for that. So they were compelled, but they won't, weren't coerced. And as I talked to First Service about this whole thing with Christ, uh, by this time they'd come to realize that in following him as Messiah, there was great privilege in it. And in my mind, I've always thought about that great privilege in relationship to the way that David's men thought of it as a privilege to follow him. And, and there's one story in, uh, in Samuel's uh, account of, of everything where you remember the, the Bethlehem where David was born and raised was at that time occupied by the Philistines, the arch enemies of Israel. And in passing, two of his soldiers overheard him say, oh, to drink of the well of Bethlehem. Do you guys remember the story? Two of his mighty men said, we'll take care of that. And so they infiltrated the ranks of the Philistines, and then one of them held them off while the other one drew the water. And then they escaped, and they went back to David, and they gave him the water. That's loyalty. Now, David didn't ask them to do it, but his men sought the good pleasure of their commander. It was their, it was their pleasure to do that for him. And then, of course... As Second Samuel records, they won themselves a name among the mighty. Now, I think it's true that, especially for guys, we want to win a name among the mighty. If you don't, you're a wuss, okay? And if you know Jesus for who he is, to demonstrate loyalty to him, to win a name among the mighty, those are the guys I want to be around. Amen? We all love those guys. We love them. These men, these disciples, instantly had felt the privilege. They knew that Jesus was saying to them that you're done fishing in this lake. It's now time to follow me and I will make you fishers of men. It's time to, to serve the commander, the king, and gather his subjects to him. It's time to follow me. And for the boys, I think that you know, during that year where they were on and off with him, that there was, they were filled with great anticipation. When is he going to call us? When is the day coming? We've waited this whole year. He's teased us with all of this stuff that he's done. 
the authority that he's expressed, the miracles that he's done, his teachings, when. And so when Jesus came to them and said, now's the time, I mean, they were in the middle of what they were doing and they just said, they dropped it all and they followed him. They didn't hesitate. They just went with him. The Greek is akalutheo. It literally means to be in the same way with, to be in step with. That was their desire. They were ready to toss everything aside and be in the same way with Jesus. He wanted them with him, and they wanted to be with him. That last year was something for them, apparently. So he went on from there. He didn't go far, according to Luke's account. He saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. He called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father, and followed him. Now, I think that there, that whole part right there adds more gravity to it because in the narrative, we have parents, boats, nets were all left behind in order to follow Jesus. They left their parents. They left their occupation without reservation. That's a lot at one time, isn't it? Yeah. Understand, this is not a, a general call of discipleship. This is not how he called everyone when he walked among us. And it's not how he calls everyone today. Uh, We know that Jesus is calling these men into full-time ministry, and serious full-time ministry. Of course, he calls everyone to trust him, to obey his word, to follow his commands. That's the general call. But he does not call everyone to drop everything and follow him as he did the disciples. He was expecting them to do that. In Luke 5, of the same account, the text says that they they forsook everything to follow him. The word forsook is to abandon, uh, to to get rid of, to set it all aside. This is no general call. It's very specific. Notice, though, in the text that it doesn't say that they left their wives and their children. They didn't leave their wives and their children. That would be a violation of God's will. It would be inconsistent with his call. Now, I bring this up because I, I do have a beef with Uh, men who go into the ministry and leave their families to go do missions for two, three, five years at a time. And I know that some of those missionaries are venerated in church history. I do not. I do not. And I I have a very strong opinion about all of this. God would never call us to leave behind our families. But that's not the case with parents. In the scriptures, we're actually commanded when we get married to leave our father and mother, to cleave to our spouse in order to become one flesh with them. So we cannot leave our spouse behind to follow Jesus because Jesus also said regarding marriage, what did he say? Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. The marriage bond and the responsibilities of of the marriage covenant are never to be severed or violated in order to follow Jesus, not to any degree, Uh, not in the general call, and not in a call to full-time ministry. He doesn't call us to violate his will in one place in order to do his will in another place. It's just completely contradictory to his character. As far as we know, Peter was the only disciple at this time who was married. And we'll get to that in Matthew chapter 8. Jesus heals his mother-in-law, and people with mother-in-laws are what? They're married. Okay. But we find later in the narrative of Scripture, in the epistles rather, that 
his wife was with him on his missionary journeys, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5. So Peter did not leave his wife to cleave to Jesus. Amen? She was a part of it. So if Jesus calls you into the ministry, he has called your wife to be with you. Not necessarily to do the ministry as you do, but she is nonetheless called alongside of you. And if you do not keep your covenant responsibilities to your wife, you are disqualified to go into ministry. Please say amen. Okay? And if you're in the ministry and you fail to keep your covenant responsibilities to your wife, you are disqualified from remaining in the ministry. Okay? If we had a missionary who had violated any of this stuff, I would pull them. I would pull them. Just like I would one of my elders or one of my pastors. Just as I would expect my elders to pull me. Amen? I'm not above being pulled. I guess the historical term is defrocked. But how many of you guys have heard that term? Okay, a couple of you. What a scary term, defrocked. Can I just be pulled? <laughs> yeah. The call to Christ does not exclude our spouse if we're married. It always includes them. But it doesn't always include parents, as we see in the text. But even while the boys abandoned their occupation and they, they left their parents behind, it did not excuse them, and it does not excuse us of our biblical responsibility to care for our parents when they need us, especially when it comes to our widowed or abandoned mothers. Paul makes this very clear when he says, 1 Timothy 5.8, but if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now the context here is the care of a mother who has been widowed. But you can see that it has a broader application, doesn't it? That's just the immediate context. If our widowed or abandoned mother is in want of her provisions, her necessities, we are called to provide for her. Now, I love this because not only do I believe it's right, but in our church we have a number of families here that their parents have become elderly, uh, many of them widowed one way or the other, and they have been faithful to come alongside their parents and care for them. And what a great testimony, especially in the midst of a culture that continues to push parents away uh, and, and really almost in prison in some of these facilities. And, and I, I believe that there's care beyond what many of us can give our parents, and we have to seek for greater care for them. But the problem is, is if you ever visit a home where there's assisted living, uh, you'll find out real quick that they haven't seen their grandbabies or their kids, some of them for years and years. They are abandoned there. And <clears throat> I like to go, you can't go anymore, <clears throat> I think it's demonic, but I used to go and visit people and I always take my children with me. And you know what would happen when I would bring children into the dining facility? We could barely have dinner because these elderly people were so drawn to our children. And then they would begin to cry and share how their own kids have not come to see them how they haven't brought the grandkids around. And so they just feed off of other people's children when they're around. If you want to be a blessing to, to people that have been abandoned, take your small children down there, if they're well-behaved, okay? And, I mean, what an opportunity to minister to people. Babies are precious to them. But our culture is just getting rid of old people, and they're not bearing that responsibility to, to help them out. I, I know pastors that have left the ministry because their wife uh, was, had, had Alzheimer's or dementia. 
And uh, they left the ministry to care for their, their wives. And then after doing that for a number of years, then they came back to the ministry because the wife came first. Such a beautiful, beautiful thing. But parents, I've, I've known pastors that have left the ministry to care for their parents. And then after their parents passing, they come back into the ministry because that responsibility is, is very high. If their real needs are met, okay, then we can go. You know, Luke 14, 26, <clears throat> this controversial statement by Jesus, it needs to be understood clearly. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. How many of you guys have tripped on that text there a little bit? It's a good one, huh? Yeah, he also says in Romans 9 that he, he's loved Jacob and hated Esau. Wow, that's strong to strong statement there. Of course, it's not talking about uh, the individual Esau or the individual Jacob. If you look at the quotation in, in chapter 9, it's from the prophets. It's referring to the nation that came out of Esau and the nation that came out of Jacob. But nonetheless, you have this thing where hating and loving. Now, if you take Jesus's words too strongly, uh, you're, you will violate his intent. Okay? Oftentimes in the scriptures, uh, the, the word hate means to love less, as it does here. Okay, so be cautious of that uh, when you're reading the text of Scripture. Jesus is not calling us to hate our family. He's calling us to love God supremely, supremely. Jesus has called us to love and honor our parents, so he cannot here mean that we're to despise and abhor them. Even some of them can be pretty nasty. <laughs> But he doesn't say honor and love if, right? He doesn't say that ever. Now Jesus will later have an encounter with the Pharisees over this whole issue. And what the Pharisees were doing is they were teaching, how, uh, teaching people how they could circumnavigate the law. So in other words, honor your father and mother, okay? And, he, and the Pharisees were teaching people how to get around that so that they could keep their own money. And so what they were counseling them to do is they said, okay, if you have this, this, this stash, then what you can do is you can claim it as Corban in the temple. And it means I'm, I'm claiming it as a gift to God. And then, I mean, how could you give to your parents what has been gifted to God? It's a complete violation of the scriptures. It's just, it's sleight of hand and trickery. But Jesus gets involved and he gets angry over this whole thing. And he talks about how slippery these snakes are. But what he does, just as Isaiah says, he says when the Messiah comes, he's going to elevate the law and make it honorable. And what they were doing is they were diminishing the law and they were elevating these stupid traditions and things like that. I love Jesus' interaction with those guys. It's so fun. Here in our text on the screen there, he's saying that one's love and devotion for family and self cannot be compared to our love for God, if we are to be a disciple of Jesus. God must come first. He must be loved above all else. And our love for him must outshine our love and devotion for family. Loyalty should be to him first and foremost. But here's you know, the, the interesting way that divine, divine love works, the beauty of all this. When somebody truly loves God, he gives them a greater capacity to love other people. When somebody truly loves God, he invigorates their love. He gives it more capacity. He gives you more ability to love that person where you could not have loved them that much otherwise. 
So the truth is, if you don't love God, you're ripping everyone else off. You're ripping your spouse off who wants to be loved more than you currently love them. But the only way to do that is to be in love with Jesus, who can elevate your love for them. Okay? He's the one that does that. Without God, we're limited in how much we can love other people. Some people don't recognize or believe that, but there's too many testimonies uh, to the contrary. Uh, if you take all of Paul's testimony, you know, in Acts, he has his testimony a few times, but when you mingle his comments from the epistles as he interprets his life uh, um, in hindsight, he, he says that, you know, I, I, I hated the church and I hated Jesus. I became a blasphemer. I would slander his name. And then I, I became a madman, he says, as I, I, as I hunted Christians down he said, I would torture them until they would blaspheme the name of Jesus. Some I would throw into prison, others I would kill. So that's, that's where Paul went from, or came from, and then he went from that to a place where he so loved the church, and his loyalty to Christ was so strong that he gave his life. He risked his life everywhere he went to reach people and to disciple those in the faith. Why do you think people are always abandoning Paul? How would you like to go with him from city to city and get whooped every time? I mean, they took a beating, they got stoned, they got punched. Uh, in Philippi, it says that they were beaten, but the Greek word is lictor, probably where licking came from. But the lictors it, were rod bearers. They, they had brass rods. Paul and, and Silas were beaten with brass rods. And that wasn't the last time. Paul volunteered for it later, just so that he could reach the unbeliever, and disciple the believer. The love of God was manifest in him. And he loved the pagan. He loved the barbarian. He says, I'm a debtor to them. Uh, I think another beautiful testimony is, is the hiding place with Corrie ten Boon. You know, her testimony about her sister's love for the Nazis. God filled her with love for those people. So you can be a doubter if you want. You'll be wrong. But God can give you the ability to love people more with him rather than without him. So to not love God supremely actually diminishes the love that we can have for others. Now hopefully uh, our relationship with our parents complements the ministry rather than hindering it. Amen? Uh, I'm personally thankful that uh, my mother, uh, she's not only a part of my life and the life of my children, but she does ministry here with me. And I've often thought how difficult it would be to be in ministry or at least to have that always in the back of my head if she was opposed. You know what I'm saying? Uh, but she's not only for it, she's here with us. I would never want her to cope with that. Uh, my father copes with it, but it's too bad. So. so in our text, the boys drop everything and they do it immediately. When Jesus says, follow, they left parent and occupation without reservation. It's beautiful. Now, the, this story is not unique in history as far as people being called to God. There's a good one. Uh, I've often referred to it. Uh, it's 1 Kings 19. You might have read over it quickly without kind of weighing the significance of it. But God, in that story, told Elijah to anoint, to anoint Elisha. Remember, he was hiding out at Mount Sinai, running from Jezebel. And uh, the Lord came to him in a still, small voice. And then Elijah's ready to engage again with the Lord. He says, I want you to anoint Elisha. He's going to replace you as prophet. So Elijah 
left Mount Sinai, found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen before him, and he was with the 12. Then Elijah passed by him and threw his mantle on Elisha. Talking about random. He doesn't even say anything. He just walks back and he's like, past me. And Elisha looks up and he sees Elijah, who everybody in, in the nation is scared of. And then he realizes that the mantle is on his shoulders. That has real significance, doesn't it? To be the prophet of Israel. And so he, he leaves his ox and he runs after Elijah. And he said, please, let me kiss my father and my mother. And then I will follow you. And he said to him, go back again. For what have I done to you? So Elisha turned back from him and took a yoke of oxen and slaughtered them and boiled their flesh using the oxen's equipment and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and followed Elijah and became his servant. Yeah. You know, Elisha didn't just drop everything to be Elisha's apprentice, you know, like immediately, but he, he actually did in another way. He wasn't stalling in obedience. What he did was very important. Consider it. He took the tools of his trade, all of the, the implements used for plowing, because it's an agrarian culture, the yoke and, and the rest of the equipment, all of it for plowing. He made a fire with it, and then he took two oxen, that's the heavy equipment, right? He slaughtered and cooked them, and then he fed it to his community, and then he became Elijah's servant, his apprentice. Why would he do all that? Why would he do all that? You know, Elisha understood exactly what it meant to wear Elijah's mantle. He knew what God was calling him to do and what it would require of him. And if he were to do that, he could not continue as he was. It had to end. So Elisha destroyed his own livelihood. Destroyed it. He, he could have sold the oxen and, and the equipment or given it away, but instead he did something that was just final. He made a clean break with his old life. You know, we could say that he burned the bridge behind him so that there was no going back. No going back. Destroyed the thing that he would need in order to go back, in order to survive. It's a symbolic gesture that he was done with his old life. And he was moving on to something new and new associations. I think it's kind of funny. He, he threw his own going away party. And he's like, I'm out. I'm out. Nothing left to even tempt him to go back. He's done. His life now belonged to God, and God was responsible for Elisha. And that's exactly where God wanted him. That's exactly where we want to be. So, you know, forsaking everything to follow God uh, full time, it's just nothing new. Now, of course, Peter and Andrew were in partnership with James and John and their father, so they couldn't exactly destroy their boats and nets. Uh, Andrew and James's father would... Uh, or James and John's father would need that stuff. But the boys made a complete break from their former lives. They dropped it. They were done. They were no longer fishermen, but they were followers of Christ. They're now fishers of men. A whole different thing. Isn't that amazing that they knew nothing really of being fishers of men. They didn't know what the next day would bring for them, but they trusted Jesus, so they dropped it all. It's great faith. It's great faith. There's, there's no more livelihood. There's no more bringing in money. There's no more selling fish so that you can buy food. They're going to have to be compensated by faith, serving Christ. As Paul said, they're going to have to live off the gospel now. Okay. Yeah. 
Now, of course, the Lord hasn't called all of us into full-time ministry. Not everybody, not all of you have been called to forsake everything to be his disciple as they did. But every last one of us, we've been called to regard the things of this world as forsaken. Do you understand? To consider them forsaken, okay, as nothing. Our heart, our affections, we should have a very light grip on the things of this world so that when Jesus, if he were to call us, what could we do? Just let it go. I didn't love it anyway. I was just using it as a means to glorify you. If you're done with it in my life, I'm done with it. A light touch. Okay. Uh, we're going to leave this subject alone for now. I'll pick it up again in Matthew 16. Let's move on in the text. I love this. Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Now, as the narrative continues, we find out really what it means to go throughout all Galilee. Uh, Jesus went into their synagogues. That was his Sabbath ministry, okay, his Sabbath work. Kind of an interesting concept, huh? Sabbath work. Jesus says, my dad has been working until now, and he's right at his side. He was in their cities. Uh, he was in their homes frequently. He was doing this on the roadways, the beaches, and out on the countryside. All these places he's teaching He's preaching, and he's healing. Let's talk about all of these real quick. I think they're super important, and it'll probably give you some clarity about why we do things the way we do here at Calvary. The word teaching is the same as giving instruction, and preaching is proclaiming. It's proclamation. So preaching and proclamation, they usually have to do with, uh, with the announcement or the introduction of something new or imminent something that's on the horizon, something that is coming. What was coming? The kingdom of heaven is at hand, Jesus said. He's preaching that. Teaching, on the other hand, is unpacking what has been preached. Teaching and instruction deal with the implications, the exhortation that pertains to what is introduced, like what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. I would say really what it means to live for the king in this kingdom in a world that's filled with darkness. So we see Jesus doing both. He was announcing the kingdom, and he was teaching people how to live for the king. Now, when we're discipling unbelievers to Christ, we must preach the gospel to them. Amen? We must preach Christ, him crucified, his resurrection, repentance, his demands on their life, all of that. And on a basic level, we have to tell them what all of that means. That's preaching and teaching. But when we're discipling believers who are currently in the faith, we're providing the finer instruction of the Christian faith as it pertains to you know, a proper understanding of God's person, his attributes. Also, biblical doctrines of Christian practice, our worship, marriage, and family, raising children, business, our relationship to one another, to government. That's, that's what we do here on Sunday morning. So preaching is the primary method of communication in the context of evangelism. Instruction is secondary. But in the context of the church's fellowship and worship, instruction is the primary method of communication, and preaching is secondary. Now, we still preach in this context, and the reason we do that is because we know that there's unbelievers that come, right? And we have people that think they're believers that aren't believers and are here. And we also have young children that have not yet come to faith, right? 
So we want to make sure that there's preaching in the context of the church. We do not want to step over them in order to give instruction. Now, there's two problems that happen in church philosophy, and I think you'll identify with one or both of them. In many churches on Sunday morning, the primary method of communication is preaching. And the result is is that the believers starve to death as the pastor tries to get the congregation saved every Sunday. That's the focus, is getting people saved. But what about the saved? There's a problem. In other churches, the emphasis can be so heavy on teaching that it excludes the preaching to the immature, to the young, to the lost. They're overlooked, and they die in our midst. Can you think of a stranger place for people to die spiritually than the church? That's crazy. We cannot do that. Now, I know people that say that preaching does not belong in the church at all, because this is the place to to instruct and equip the believers for ministry. And I understand that. And, and that should be our primary focus here. But when we read Paul's epistles to all of the various churches, you know what we find there? Keep in mind, he wrote the letters to believers, and those letters were to be read on the first day of the week, on Sunday. Do you know what's mingled in all of his letters? The preaching of the gospel to believers, okay? Even to the Philippians, who are some of the most mature believers. Okay? So we have, we have an example, we have precedence. I, I believe that by his example, we have instruction to make that a part of the ministry here. But if we primarily preach in this context, we will stifle the growth and maturity of the believer. Remember, there's one church in particular that Paul had many problems with, that's Corinth. And what did he say about them? He says, you're babes. He says, I was not able to give you meat. I could only give you milk. They couldn't tolerate it. Now, a church that is constantly, you know, subjected to the preaching of the gospel every week, they're not going to grow to maturity where they can tolerate meat. So we have to have this instruction of the word here. Here at Calvary Chapel, that's our primary objective, is to instruct and to equip believers for the ministry. We want to serve the meat, but we don't want to step over those that can't tolerate it. Amen? We need to do that. We don't want to neglect them. You know, Jesus said the tares are among us, and so we have to preach to them. He, I believe, has lured them here into the setting, and I want to take my best shot at them. Okay. So Jesus, we see, do both. <clears throat> but it becomes very clear that there's, there's a distinction in it. When he has the 12 with him, and then later as he has the 70 with him, the emphasis is on instruction. But when he's out in the public speaking to the masses, the emphasis is on preaching. You get it? It'll come out clear as we go through the narrative. It's all, it's all necessary. But Jesus wasn't just teaching and preaching. He's also healing people's sickness and diseases. Now, I think it's important with so much going on in our culture, uh, what's going on on TBN, what we see on YouTube, with all of, these, with all of the craziness, I want to make sure that we understand what's going on here as Jesus heals people. First of all, Jesus wasn't peddling cures. That's not what he's doing. Okay, he, he's, he's not selling tonics for tummy aches. I think one of the most important facts about Jesus's ministry is that he charged nothing for his miracles. He took no offerings in his ministry. I think some churches could learn a lesson from that. Jesus in three and a half years never passed an offering plate. Very interesting. Now people were underwriting his ministry, but he never begged for money. He never panhandled with a plate. 
I told first service he wasn't some faith healer on TBN with big hair, a happy face, and a fat wallet. He was, he was homeless. He was homeless. These people that he was with, they weren't serving him. He was serving them. Jesus even said the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So he was serving them. If they couldn't come to him, what did Jesus do? He went to them. He went to them. I think that's very interesting. Today, where do you not see faith healers? Where they're challenged. You don't see them in hospitals. You don't see them when there's a huge natural disaster and people have died. You don't see them where they're challenged. You know where Jesus went? Where it was a mess. Where it was a mess. These people were healed supernaturally. They weren't the victims of sleight of hand or some trick. It says, then his fame went throughout all Syria and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments. The, the, the Greek word there for torments, is, it's a metaphorical term for torture devices. So we're talking about people that, that were experiencing something that would be equivalent in their illness to being tortured. And, and I know people like this. And it was those who were demon-possessed. There was epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. The, I mean, just imagine the paralytics coming to Jesus, well, brought to Jesus, or Jesus went to them with their neck broken and had no movement from the neck down, and lay his hands on them, and they would be revived. It's amazing. Jesus was exercising sovereign authority over illness, demons, epilepsy, paralysis, both the spiritual element that might be behind illness, like the demons, and the natural issues behind illness. Now, I use the word authority. He, he exercised sovereign authority because Jesus makes it very clear that he says, I have the authority to do this. We often think of, well, you'd have to have the power. Well, actually, power comes with authority. And so Jesus doesn't just say, well, I've got power. He's saying, I have the authority from my Father to do this. And so I'm going to exercise my sovereignty by his command. His presence was radically affecting Adam's curse on humanity wherever he was. It's great. There was no illness, <clears throat> no pain, no suffering beyond the reach of his sovereign healing hand. Listen, when you read the narrative uh, of the Gospels, you'll realize that, there's, that Jesus healed more people in one day than all of the Old Testament prophets did in their lifetimes combined. <laughs> Things are different, okay? The king is in town. And then because of what people were witnessing, because of what people were experiencing, the text says that pagans now started coming from the north, Syria. And we say pagans. These are real pagans. I know that in America we don't see a lot of people bowing down to idols. No, this is legitimately the Syrian pagans. They bow down to idols. It's not working for them. But they've heard about this Jewish man in Israel who at the touch of his hand, at, the, at a spoken word, people are being healed. And so they've had to humble themselves in regard to their faith, and they've had to come south to be with Jesus. It says, great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. So Jesus isn't just in Capernaum. He's going throughout all the regions of Galilee, okay? So the locals from Galilee are flocking to him. We've said Syria to the north. We also have Decapolis to the northeast across the river. We have Jerusalem, the capital, the religious capital, 
and found in Judea in the south, and then we have the regions beyond the Jordan to the east. Guys, think about this for a minute. There's every, everything travels at a maximum at the speed of horse. There's no mail, really, like we know, and not email. There's no Facebook. There's, there's no way to get the word out other than word of mouth. And it's spread to, to pagan regions all over Israel, and people are just flocking in because they have no hope. There's no hope. Okay? Some are there because they heard and saw. Others because they heard and they experienced great multitudes. And understand, there's no hyperbole in that statement. Okay? Imagine that. At a time in history when so many were oppressed and without hope, at a time when there was no real medicine for serious illness, there's no real therapy for serious injury, there's no solution for the problems of demons, but there's Jesus, and he's exercising his authority over all of it, all of it. They're coming. They've, they've experienced a touch of the kingdom because they've been touched by the king. You remember as Isaiah prophesied about the Messiah coming to the regions of the north, he says, the people who sat in darkness, they have seen a great light. He's there to give them healing, to give them hope. It's beautiful. Now, real quick, in the list here, perhaps you noticed that among the cities and regions, there's one particular one that is omitted. It's the region where all of the strife is, all of the racial conflict. It's not in the list. The people from Samaria were not coming to Jesus. I think this is a good test of the true nature of Jesus' character and mission. If they don't come to him, what's he going to do? He will cross all traditional boundaries. He will put off all tradition, all that stuff, all the racial conflict. He cares nothing for it. And he's going to go over the border and will risk his life to do it. And he will reach out to the Samaritans. I think it's sweet. It's so great. You know, the truth is, um, as fishermen know, fish don't typically jump into your boat. People don't usually come to us to hear the gospel. It happens, okay? But it's not really the typical thing. And so Jesus and the commission said to us to do what? To go, to go. We have to go. To be in line with Jesus' character, his mission, we have to love those people enough to go to them. Paul said in Romans 3, no one seeks after God. The unregenerate, the unsaved, they have no desire for God. It's we've been called upon to whet their appetite, okay, to be light, to be salt. We have to go. Uh, and in, in uh, I guess in honor of that, uh, I don't think it's a coincidence, but uh, you know that we have uh, one of our missionaries with us, Bethany, and uh, she has gone to a, a place uh, where they certainly aren't coming to us. She's going to share with us uh, January 9th, and, uh, and then we're going to try to squeeze her in someplace else. Have you, did, do you know about that? Oh, we'll fill you in. You just have to show up. Okay. Uh, but I have to say that, especially to those that are watching online, when Bethany shares, uh, nothing will be streamed online because it puts her life at risk where she's serving. Okay. And so also what we would like you to do is we know that you guys are on social media and stuff. Please do not, when, when Bethany shares it, do not share her name and where she's at on any social media platform. Please do not, okay? But she will be sharing with us the ninth. You did know about the ninth, right? Okay, all right. Well, go ahead and stand up and we'll pray and I'll get you out of here. I'm running a little late. My Sunday school teachers are gonna kill me. It's, it's a metaphor. So. Father, we love you. Lord Jesus, we thank you that 
Lord, you, you have the authority to call, and we have, we have the prerogative to follow, and that's it. But how good it is to follow you, to be in step with you. And Lord, I just pray that as we see your example, Lord, in teaching and preaching and serving the people out of compassion and love, that when they would not come to you, you would go to them. Lord, there's so much for us to glean from you. Lord, help us to follow in your footsteps. If we're going to follow you, it's going to take us to some pretty wild places. Help us to have courage. Help us to be loyal. Grant us grace, Lord. Lord, we love you. Thank you for my church family. I just pray that you would encourage their hearts and uh, that you would help them to be salt and light in the darkness that's out there. Bless them, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.